Blog Talk Radio. in Ponte Vedra, Florida, and several other states around the country. Thanks for listening to the EAL, or Eastern Airlines Talk Radio. My name is Neil Holland, the producer of the show, and we have a great show for you tonight. And to all the listeners around the world, we say welcome. Hello, Eastern family and friends. It's great having you with us. My name is Jim Hart, coming to you live from the beautiful area called West Palm Beach in Florida, USA, where today the weather was just about 80 degrees with very low humidity. That's my kind of weather. Thank you very much for listening and calling the show. You have truly made us the radio voice of Eastern Airlines. In fact, we can now say we become Eastern Airlines International Radio Show with over 50 countries listening to us every week. We'd love to hear your comments and share your memories with radio listeners from around the world. And we'd like to share your memories as well as ours. If you haven't called the show before, all you need to do is call 213-816-1611 and just say hello or hola to talk with us on the air live. We can identify many countries around the world who listen in with our blog talk radio application. Isn't it great that we can keep the Eastern legacy going out not only to the Eastern family, but to many, many listeners from all around the world. That's what we try to do every week on the EAL radio show. Won't you join us by adding your voice to these broadcasts? Our thanks also to those who choose to listen by computer using the radio icon on our homepage at www. Dot EALRadioShow.com or perhaps by signing in at the site of our provider, Blog Talk Radio at www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie. And remember to abbreviate the word Captain 
to CAPT, C-A-P-T. Should you wish to talk during our live broadcast, feel free to use our call-in number. Also, it's 213-816-1611 at 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Let me repeat that number so you can write it down for your Monday night visits. That's 213-816-1611. And by the way, tell your friends about us. We'd love to hear from them, too. And don't forget, you can listen to any of our 411 Monday night broadcasts and the 75-plus Thursday broadcast by simply going to blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie. Uh, so, that's, let me uh, repeat that again. That's Cap, C-A-P-T, Eddie. And scrolling down to the archive of broadcasts, each episode is briefly described. You know that we are getting close to 500 episodes. Holy blue Sunoco, we're there. Our lines are always open for calls. And if you choose not to participate and talk live with your host, we ask that you please mute your phone as our producer does not have the capability of filtering out any outside broadcast background noises. I see we're number one for takeoff. And, Captain, let's get flight number 411 in the air. Eastern 411, you're cleared. Tower Blur is 650 volt, Roger, Eastern 411, we are rolling. It's Sunday in Mexico. The sun floods an arena. Historic Buell is on. The sun spotlights a diver at Acapulco. Referees a children's game at the pyramids of Teotihuacan. The sun warms a beautiful mermaid in Puerto Rico and covers the vacation paradise of Miami. Every year, more people choose this one to the sun because Eastern service is as warm as the destination. Eastern 411, this is Mexico Tower. You're clear to land. Uh, Roger. Tower, this is a 401. We're on final and clear land.
The mid-1950s was an eventful stage in Eastern Airlines history. The introduction of alcoholic beverages on board on December 1, 1954, was perhaps a celebration of completing 20 years of profitable operation. This was a result almost entirely of the relatively non-seasonal nature of the routes to Florida, a high rate of aircraft utilization, a fleet of average of about 10 hours a day or more in the air. A further incursion into a foreign field was made in the following year, on July 19, 1957. ADC-7B opened service from New York to Mexico City via New Orleans. And on September 23rd of that year, a Washington was added as a capital-to-capital service between the two countries and the airport known as Mexico City International Airport. Eastern Airline was now an international airport. When Atlanta was added to the Mexico City routes, it was the first time Atlanta was recognized as an international airport. Another first of many accomplishments by Eastern. Nothing. Uh, I want to talk about the Mexico City Airport. I do know a little bit about it, as over the years I flew in there many times in good weather and bad weather. And I want to add a tidbit to your report on the DC-7B flying down on September 23rd, 1957. The first flight, <laughs> what happened and was lost in history almost, was the first flight from Mexico City by New Orleans did not go smoothly at all. With Captain Eddie and loads of guests on board, the captain managed to miss a taxiway at the New Orleans airport and ended up in the mud, stuck mid-time. History is sort of fuzzy on how long that delay in New Orleans was, but I bet the captain could tell everyone about it to the minute later on. (laughs) Now let's talk about the Mexico City Airport. The Federal Official Gazette, DOF, published a decree on July the 8th, 1943, which declared the Central Airport of Mexico City as an international airport for passengers and airplanes entry and departures. Six years later, construction began on runway 5 right, 23 left, as well as other new facilities, including a platform, terminal building, control tower, and offices for authorities. The runway was inaugurated in 1951, and on November the 19th, 1952, the buildings were open for business. The Mexico Control Tower, which continues in operation to this day, was inaugurated on November 24th, 1978. On August 15th, 1979, a remodeled terminal building was unveiled. This project took just over a year but did not affect airport services and made better use of spaces for the passengers' movement walkways. On December 2, 1963, an agreement with former Communications and Transportation Minister Walter C. Buchanan changed the name of the Central Airport to Mexico City International Airport, that's A-C-A-I-C-M, rather. Four decades later, on November 24, 2006, Benito Juarez was added to the name through a decree published in the Federal Official Gazette. Chuck? On May 31, 1994, general aviation operations were transferred to the International Airport to reduce traffic at AICM due to 
constant growth, both in the number of passengers and operations. This was announced in the DOF on the 13th of January. That year, renovations continued, and on April 11th, 1994, operations began at the facilities of the new international terminal built by a private company in accordance with a co-investment agreement with airports and auxiliary services. To improve passenger capacity, construction began in 2001 on Modular 11, which gave the air terminal eight new contract positions with capability to receive an equal number of regular bodied airplanes or two wide cabin planes or four narrow body planes. Aimed at growing at, at the growing demand and in order to make the AICM one of the best airports in terms of quality, service, security, and operation functionality, the federal government announced the expansion and modernization of the, of the airport on May 30th 2003. This would expand the AICM service capacity from 20 to 32 million passengers per year. The program was part of a metro airport system promoted by the federal government. The Communications and Transportation Ministry, the SCT, and the Aero Services Auxiliary ASA and the AICM performed expansion remodeling work on Terminal 1 over a surface area of 90,000 meters, 48,000 of which were new construction and 42,000 of which were remodeled. Mike? Yes, uh, the following year, in August 2004, the expanded national baggage area was unveiled, which grew from 2,760 meters to 3,750 meters. In this area, two new baggage carousels were installed to serve 2 million more people. In other words, the capacity was expanded to provide uh, service to 9 million passengers per year. This pre-boarding area, Salva Bravo, was expanded to 9,550 square feet to a total of 24,901 square feet. This area stretched its capacity from 7 to 9 million passengers per year. The renovations included a new airline counters, escalators, commercial spaces, pay phones, bathrooms, and an elevator for people with disabilities, which improved the, the flow of the passengers with domestic destinations. The national primary walkway was remodeled and expanded to 12,040 feet square feet to up to 26,804 square feet. And that was a 122% uh, increase. Commercial spaces were relocated to provide users with wide open modern spaces. During this period, the new mezzanine was also built. This area is home to the financial and various other services in the area. Don? With the demolition of the tower building, Terminal 1's road was expanded and improved. The passengers' access gates were also uh, reorganized. Four acres for excess bridges were relocated and remodeled, two leading to the national parking lot, one leading to the parking lot, and another towards the Hotel Camino Real. The national and international parking lots were equipped with a modern 
automated prepaid system which simplifies user availability available and departure. Both have a current capacity of 3,000 vehicles and offer all typical types of aircraft, uh, I'm sorry, types of access to people with disabilities. A new drainage system was built with the road, which prevents flooding during the rainy season. A vehicle bridge was built for ex exclusive access to new passenger check-in areas at maintenance F uh, entrances F1, 2, and 3, where national and international airlines arrive and depart. New international check-in areas were built on the terminal's first floor on the surface area of 5,600 square feet. To facilitate traveler, uh, traveler entry into the uh, final waiting areas located in Module 11, gates 29 to 36, a new checkpoint was opened. It was called Juliana, called J and was located near a new check-in areas F1, 2, and 3. A new immigration area, M2, was built in the lower level. This space has 24 immigration modules with light-up indicators to facilitate arriving travelers' entry into airport facilities. This area has wide open spaces for travelers coming from North America, Europe, and Asia. The international baggage claim area was expanded by 100% with the installation of six new carousels that help passengers get their baggage in less time and prevent crowding. The custom areas grew from 3,350 3, to 6,200 meter two, and the number of inspection models grew from 10 to 18. New revision models, modules are located in the new international departures area, which connects directly to the new taxi boarding area. Among other work performed in the international area, a long-distance bus terminal was built with connection to Puebla, Cernonavaca, Pachua, Toluca, Querétaro, and Orzaba. The new bus station has access to a food court in the international arrivals and departure area, as well as a pedestrian bridge that connects to the Pino de los Banos neighborhood. Yeah, and the airport expansion and modernization included major changes in the operations area, which the purpose is of improving the infrastructure and making it more accessible. Different renovations took place, including expansion of the Coca-2 tarmac, construction of the Golfa tarmac, and the renovation of Alpha and Bravo tarmacs, which will help increase AICM's capability from 54 to 61 plane operations, that's takeoffs and landings per hour, and facilitate aircraft movement from runways to the terminal buildings. To make plane operations more secure, horizontal and vertical signaling was improved on runways, tarmacs, and platforms, which are essential in the airplane arrivals and departures. 
as as well as a barrier system at all at all tarmac waiting points. Bravo Tarmac, which is located between Terminal 1 and Runway 5 left and 23 right, 05 left, 23 R, was rebuilt and renovated to improve airplane and traffic operations and also to increase airline service quality. As part of the operations area's security, the deflector was expanded, which means the, the protection of keeping from jet blast from going across the road that was in the rear part of the heading of runway five left and five right. Improvements on AEICM's operating infrastructure included construction and semi-deep drainage system that was eight meters deep, 820 meters long, and 1.83 meters wide, which crosses the platform tarmacs and runways and helps reduce the impact of rain. AICM expansion and remodeling also included the construction of a new terminal to be able to offer users and travelers better services and spaces. Terminal 2 was built over a surface area of 242,666 square feet and has modern security systems in accordance with international standards, including a passenger traffic separation system. The new facility will help AICM increase its capability of its capacity of 32 million passengers per year. That's a lot. It has a traveler's building with 23 points of contact and six remote points, parking for more than 3,000 vehicles, an automated train between Terminal 1 and 2, hotel bridges with new entry and exit roads. Air operations in the new facility began on October, November 15, 2007, with flights by uh, Amaro and Delta Airlines, Aeromexico, uh, Copaland, and Continental. Terminal 2 was formally inaugurated by former President Felipe Calderon Hino de Rocha on March 26, 2008. I'm sorry I didn't pronounce that right. Terminal 2 is connected to Terminal 1 through an inter-terminal train that runs three kilometers as well as a new direct road system. It includes two distributed roads, D1, which connects TI and T2 with Rio Consulado, and D2, which connects T2 and T1 directly from Via Ducto Piedad and Rio Curubusto. These, project, <laughs> these projects were done without affecting airplane takeoffs and departures <coughs> and will help Mexico City International <coughs> Airport offer better services and respond to the growing demand of passengers and operations in the coming years. Now, here's what your producer remembers about operations <laughs> in and out of the airport. Thanks, Don. We've heard about the improvements that have been made over the years, and I wish Eastern was still operating there now. But uh, 
not the case. Now, here's what I remember about operations in and out of the airport. First of all, the elevation of Mexico City Airport. Ah, yes, it was quite high. 7,316 feet above sea level. And on a much hotter day in the summer, even higher (coughs) in density altitude, that is. The main runway, 2, 3, and 5, was shorter than the now 13,074 feet. And speaking of summer and hot temperatures, the only way you could see the airport was directly above, looking down through the thick, very thick smog. Those were the days when Eastern operated its aircraft into and out of the airport. From the sound of our program tonight, and much improvement has been made in all areas. Eastern Airlines had a near tragedy with an L-1011 on a two-engine ferry out of the Mexico City Airport, February 9th of 1974. And we're going to talk about the story as told by Captain Jim Holder and his guest uh, that were in some way involved in the near disaster. Now, Jim, before we talk about that, I've got a sound clip your producer wants to play so that uh, we'll set the stage for what happened. And here is what it sounded like. Jim, I want to let you take over from here. Jim Holder. Okay. Thank you, Neil. I might point out that those were a little, sounded like uh, continuous little baby compressor stalls. Uh, if you had one, big yeah. one, it would have uh, blown the mic off my desk here. And anyhow, as I mentioned earlier, we talked about that flight several times, that we even had someone uh, want to locate a crew member on the flight, one of our past broadcasts a couple of years ago. I do have some additional information that I would like to share, and since the show tonight focuses on Mexico City, it's a good time to bring it to our listeners with two special guests that will tell us more about the events of that flight. First, though, we have Captain Paul Town's son, Jim Town, with us tonight. Jim Town, as many know, uh, prepared a very nicely done PowerPoint regarding his dad's military career as a B-17 bomber during World War II, which he and I presented, and mostly he did, and I just messed up on my part, presented at Atlanta Reaper Luncheon, and a few weeks later at the Macon, Georgia quarterback monthly hangar meeting. And his dad's career at Easton, where he ended up being a senior captain on the ferry and test pilots at Easton Airlines. He was the captain on that 1011 ferry flight to Miami with a building stop at Acapulco that departed that day with a number three engine inoperative. 
right at liftoff, the number one engine compressor stalled, sort of like a backfire, but it quit. They went there about seven minutes, another got over 500 feet uh, above the ground as they circled back around to land on the same runway they had just departed. News to our crew here tonight that that was not the only engine failure on a ferry flight for Captain Town. Now, Jim, if you got anything more about the 1011, uh, let's hear about it if you want to talk about it. And then I want you to talk about that other engine failure that your dad had. Go ahead, Jim Town. Thanks, Jim. Um, I don't have a lot more to talk about uh, Mexico City. Uh, I was more prepared when we talked about uh, some more different news about uh, not only the Mexico City ferry for my dad, but he had a letter on his wall that was dated September 1st, 1961, and it was about a ferry flight that he did out of Indianapolis. But I didn't know much about it, only that the letter said it must have been a very interesting situation. When I was visiting my mom and my sister last year in Olympia, Washington, I was helping my mom sort some stuff out, and I found all of his logbooks going all the way back from 1945 to 1977. Mm-hmm. So I looked in the tried to find the book that uh, was about that time period of September 1961, and I found it, and oh. I found a flight on August 23rd that matched. It was a four-engine plane. I don't know what kind of plane it was, and it didn't say. And number four engine was out. And then right after takeoff, number three engine failed. So he had to fly back with only two engines on the left side of the plane. In his logbook, there's a .45 on top of where he had the note number three failure. And I don't know what that could mean. I don't know if anybody would know what point forty five would be with the when the number three engine failed. But Jim Holder was telling me that any pilot listening knows that had to be an extremely hazardous situation to be suddenly facing. But he got her back safely in the Indi- into Indianapolis. It was a twenty minute flight from fifteen fifty to sixteen fifty sixteen fifteen hours. Yeah, Jim, uh, as you know, we talked about that, and I feel it must have been a Constellation or a DC-7B, but in 1958, Eastern did have DC-8s, but I don't think DC-8s would have been flying out of Minneapolis, I mean Indianapolis. They were mainly, you know, New York, Miami, the long-haul runs and that thing. Uh, Anybody else uh, have any comments on what may have happened on that airplane? I believe that the number four engine was a problem. Probably the prop was tied down or either may have been removed. Uh, Mike, you know about some of that stuff. Do you think that that uh, my theory might be either the tiny or a DC-7? Is there a aircraft number, a ship number or anything on that? We could determine whether it was a DC-7 or a DC uh, or a Constellation. He only has the the flight number, I guess, was 7840 was yeah. the number of the flight. But it didn't say anything. He didn't have any other notes on it. Yeah, he was in there for 20 minutes, so he probably flew um, uh, maybe 15, 20, 25 miles southeast bound toward Miami, and then let the other engine fail, and he had to turn around and come back. I think that's why he was up there 20 minutes. But, you know, in Miami, he was only up about, what, five and a half or six minutes. I mean, not Miami, um, Mexico City. 
Okay. Uh, in addition to Jim Town making a return visit to us here on the radio show, we have retired Eastern Captain Jack Smith. He's the two people I was talking about, who's accompanied by uh, Mr. Chuck, and I'm sure I'm going to say the last name wrong, Har Elka. Uh, Chuck is a retired Eastern mechanic who we recently learned at a Reaper luncheon of all places that he was in Mexico City that day. He was TDY on February 9, 1974, for vacation relief for the Mexican uh, mechanic who was on vacation. And Chuck actually signed off the paperwork for that two-engine ferry flight to Acapulco to refuel. They couldn't take enough fuel out of Mexico City to make it all the way to Miami because its elevation is almost 8,000 feet. So they had to go to Acapulco and then refuel. And, of course, they didn't make it. Jack, I hope you're on board. Uh, why don't you talk, uh, you and Chuck take over and tell us what Chuck saw that day. Please, sir. Okay, uh, Jim, uh, this is Jack. And uh, the name is Hawelka, but nobody's going to remember that, I suppose. We'd call, we'll call him Chuck. Yeah, yeah. let's call him Chuck. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Chuck was uh, got started in uh, light airplanes and uh, then moved into uh, – the Eastern Airlines was there for a very long time and retired uh, before Eastern went down. He was uh, he was long gone, but he was in Mexico City that day, and he was filling in for the the uh, Mexican uh, foreman that was, was on vacation. And I think Chuck did that uh, quite a bit, and uh, I know he took his family down and, and got to know some of the Mexicans there. They got to know his family, but uh, I'm going to let Chuck uh, have it and tell you what his end of the story with the 1011 was. Chuck. Okay, this is uh, Chuck Hawelk, and I was a, uh, a field tech manager at the time at the field tech forum, excuse me, and uh, frequently uh, when their maintenance manager, Mexican maintenance manager, uh, went on vacation or other duties. They sent one of us from uh, Atlanta down there, and it happened to be my turn. And uh, on that specific day, uh, we had uh, borescoped uh, the uh, the good engines on the airplane uh, so that we felt we had a safe airplane to take off out of there the next day. Well, then we finally, uh, the, the next day, and what we usually would uh, try to stand by as any uh, um, single or uh, uh, I want to say <laughs> yeah a formality to to stand by as as the flight took off, and uh, it, it so happened that the uh, there were three of us at the time, and uh, I had uh, stepped into the maintenance shack. Which was uh, pro- probably uh, uh, 40, 50 feet away from the runway, and uh, to get my flashlight. Meanwhile, a foreman had driven a lift truck, and he had another mechanic with him. They were picking me up to go down to the terminal and stand by after the airplane took up in case they needed us. Well, as I stepped out of the maintenance shop uh, to uh, get in the uh, lift truck that they were driving. Uh, the airplane was taking off, 
and it probably uh, wasn't 50 feet, it seemed like to me at the time, when we had the compressor stall, which, as you know, is a loud bang, and the smoke did come out of the engine. And I realized right away that he was on one engine, on the, the number two engine. And uh, as you mentioned about Mexico City, uh, it surrounded my mountains and, and mostly uh, uh, capped with uh, fog. Well, that day was a, a little better than usual. So uh, as soon as that uh, um, backfired, uh, I jumped in this uh, lift truck. And a fellow started racing back to the terminal to stand by to see what would happen to be available. And uh, I was uh, trying to look out the back window of the truck. It was difficult to see out the back. This was an old lift truck, which had a lot of bars and and struts blocking the window. But the uh, the maintenance foreman was driving the truck and kept asking me, you know, keep keep me informed. And uh, I, I couldn't believe how slow it was going. I didn't know what was keeping it in the air, really. And uh, at, at times, I would lose sight of it because of the struts and whatnot on the truck. I remember once or twice, how I think we lost that thing. No, we didn't. No, here it comes around again. And we finally were heading toward the terminal and approaching, and, and they were coming toward us on the, the final approach uh, to the final landing. And he cut that so steep, I thought he lost it at that time. But he smoothed it right out, slid it out, and set it down on the runway. Now, this part we couldn't see. So we were busy trying to turn our lift truck around and race down after the airplane. It was obvious that he wasn't going to bother stopping at the terminal. He didn't uh, actually land him probably nearer the terminal. So uh, uh, he went on roll on out. And uh, we raced down there and arrived um, shortly after the fire trucks had arrived. Uh, arrived. And uh, I remember the, uh, of course, I don't speak Spanish, but the uh, the foreman who was driving a truck did. And they were uh, shooting uh, the uh, uh, white uh, chemical on the engine as we arrived. And uh, I think it was more precautionary. There weren't any flames or anything, but our uh, uh, Mexican foreman was very upset. They're putting this stuff on our hot engine. He was going to crack all the blades, so he decided to jump out of the truck after we arrived and uh, tell the firemen to quit doing it. <laughs> uh, I'm not. I'm not sure what uh, uh, Spanish. Uh, uh, Slang is like, but there was a lot of it being used there between the firemen <laughs> and the uh, <laughs> foreman. And it was obvious that the foreman was losing because the firemen kept pouring that on the engine. <laughs> Meanwhile, uh, the door opened, and I think it was uh, up in the airplane. I think it was uh, the first officer. And uh, I remember hollering up, oh, we'll get you out of there pretty quick. He said, uh, don't worry, no rush at all. Just thank God I'm here. And I think <laughs> it's something like that. I thought we bought the farm. And uh, so that was uh, about the extent of it. Then the, the firemen uh, yeah. finally gave up, and uh, uh, we uh, towed the airplane on back to the terminal. Now, I 
I, I don't recall who actually uh, talked to uh, Captain Town. I didn't know him personally, but there were occasions that I I did uh, uh, see him and speak to him about logbooks on different uh, uh, maintenance flights. But uh, I don't recall who actually took the recording there. And uh, anyway, we towed the airplane back to the terminal, and, of course, Miami was in on it. And uh, uh, they uh, immediately said, well, we're going to send a crew up there uh, or down there uh, to, to uh, change all three engines. So at that point in time, then uh, I wasn't uh, involved with it anymore. So anything I can help What time there. of day was this, uh, Chuck? What time of day was it? It, uh, trying to think back, it was probably around noontime, I would think. And, uh, we're talking 30 some years ago now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I heard you mention a flashlight, and I didn't uh, know whether it was dark or, or what, oh, but, uh, uh, fortunately, it was no, in February. Anytime I, uh, I was around an airplane, I had to have a flashlight. To be sticking my head in an engine or something like that. So yeah, make it, that makes you there. look busy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you recollect really good. You know, uh, you you found me that it looked like I was really... flying real. Go ahead, Jim. Go ahead, Dorothy. Okay, uh, you you commented it looked like they were flying very slow, and uh, they were. You know, I think uh, Jim Towns told me that the. Uh, the flight recorder indicated they got up to about 150 airspeed, 150 or something like that. 150, 150. Now, 150 miles wow. with a big airplane wow. like that, somebody's looking at it thinks it's stopped because they're normally going about 250 or 300 by then, you know. And uh, that's amazing. Well, the, Jim, uh, you and you went over to Chuck's home that night after the repo lunch, as yeah. I recall. And would you it tell was, us uh, what, uh, a couple days how that went? It was a couple of days later, or a week or so oh, later, that we arranged to, when he would have a time to be home. And it was really an honor to go over and talk to him, somebody that had something to do with his flight. Because all I ever knew about it was the letter on the wall. I never knew anything mm-hmm. about my father's World War II days or his Eastern days until after he was gone. Wow. And then all the research that Jim Holder did, about finding the two pilots, Bruce Beacon and uh, Mark Gordon, that was just incredible to get a chance to meet them, the two guys that were with him on that flight. Yeah. And Ron Murphy was, was a big one there. He knew the second officer real well when we talked about it at the repo luncheon, and he called, uh, I mean, it was almost immediately we got the, those two names. Well, Jim Holder, didn't we have that uh, question asked of, on our radio show in the past about who it yeah. was, and we put out we yeah. put out a notice. And we thought it was Gaspar Garcia at one time. I thought he was the yeah. captain. Yeah, long time ago. I'm talking about we're talking a long time ago, and yeah. we found out it was Jim uh, Paul Towns, and then well maybe Gaspar was the co-pilot, first officer. So we took that and ran with it and got nowhere. He, you know, died a long time ago, so we couldn't ask him if he was there. And that's when we mentioned it at the Reaper luncheon, and Ron Buffett was there. And said, oh, I know exactly who the second officer was. I just had dinner with oh. him two months ago. Oh, wow. Like that. 
And that's how we found those two guys. And Jim, tell us what uh, what's going on now about uh, making a movie or whatever it is out of it that y'all I'm went out to really California. Sure exactly, exactly what he's going to do, but the writer director guy Michael Simpson that contacted you to find out if this flight really existed or it happened, mm-hmm. and then you found out who the two pilots were. Well, Michael Simpson paid for. Mark Gordon to come from Boston to L.A. and Bruce Beacon to come from uh, Miami Beach to L.A. And he paid for my trip also in hotels to represent my dad. And he, he did like he wanted to do like an on-camera interview at a studio. The way he had it set up, it was just like it looked like uh, office chairs sort of with the sheepskin on it. But he said by the time he's done, it's going to make it look like you're inside the cockpit, you know, the way they do stuff with uh, computers these days to make it look like something else. Boy, that's but nice. I told him, he said, I just called him tonight, and he said he's on his way back to L.A. now. But I keep in touch with him because, you know, you had that other gentleman at the Reaper luncheon that was from, that was with the FAA that said there's an operating L-1011 simulator in California. Yeah, and I gave him all that information. He's going to contact that guy to see if he can go take pictures inside the simulator so that he can use it in that little documentary thing he's making. Oh wow! Isn't that incredible? I I thought it was just incredible to be able to meet the people and to be able to meet Chuck and talk to him about it and his recollection of everything that went on. To me, you know, not knowing anything about it, but I do have. I have a, um, in I call it the third bedroom that I call it the office room. I have all my walls. I have my mom gave me all of his World War II stuff, pictures and medals and everything, and all his mm-hmm. Eastern stuff. And I have it all over the walls. That's Sounds wonderful. like my walls. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to, I'd like to share a story out of Atlanta, and uh, that was uh, on a beautiful night going to Los Angeles from Atlanta on an L-1011. The captain was uh, Gib Guerin. I was the first officer. And we took off on uh, nine right or nine left. And swinging back toward uh, L.A., uh, just still in the airport area, I guess we were about three or 4,000 feet up in the air. Beautiful dark night all the stars shining, and the tower said, Eastern, we show flames out of your number three engine. Ah. And, of course, when he said that, we knew exactly what he was talking about because we experienced a compressor stall. And uh, we came back around and landed, and um, I forgot exactly whether we continued. I don't think we continued on to L.A., but... uh, those compressor stalls, especially at Mexico City, with an elevation of over 7,000 feet, with one engine, I mean two engines, and then have a, a failure of one engine and only one engine to go to keep you around. Wow, what an experience that must have been at 500 feet or just clipping the rooftops of houses to get back to the airport. I mean, that would make a great movie. 
Mm-hmm. You know, these 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 episodes uh, sparked off a whole maintenance deal on the RB211 engines uh, for the 1011, which was the mm-hmm. uh, what was causing yeah. those uh, compressor stalls was the variable inlet guide vane system. Yeah, and and it used to stick. So we had to lubricate that, and it had a RAM scheduling uh, pneumatic box to check the uh, the opening and closing, so that they uh, it could, they would adjust for different power settings and altitudes. And when they used to stick, and they would cause those compressor stalls, especially at higher altitudes. And as you as you guys uh, that have flown these turbine airplanes before, when you get compressor stalls, you get blade clang. The rotors in the stators, they hit each other, and that's what causes all the damage. So they started a big series of uh, of checks on all these uh, variable inlet guide vanes uh, without getting too involved with telling you all about it. But that's these several episodes that we had early on with the 1011 started all that, and they it finally got it finally got clear fixed up with a with a good system. But anyway, that was well, my you know, two Mike- cents. Mike, we were introduced to compressor stalls with the 727 with the center engine. Yeah, absolutely. And when we rolled down the runway, uh, we had a, an uneven airflow coming uh, through that um, that S duct. I think that's right. what they called it, the S duct. Yep. Because the inlet yep. was way above the intake of the engine, and that air had to pass across all sorts of uh, routing through the engine. And when you had a crosswind, uh, as I recall, and I had many compressor stalls, I think you too, Jim yeah. uh, Holder, and yeah, everyone else flying an yeah. L10, I mean a 727, um, uh, it just was an even airflow, and uh, it backfired, as we've talked about tonight. It backfired. And so we finally got to the procedure of, of uh, running down the end of the runway with number one and number two and slowly bringing in, uh, I mean, number one and number three and slowly bringing in number two as we right. got uh, more speed. Do you remember yep. that, Jim? Yes, and uh, you didn't do that yep. on L.A. trips because you had to have all three of them running from the yep. get-go. But uh, yeah. I will point out that the uh, 100 had that uh, didn't have a circular uh, intake up there, number two. Yeah. And when it came out with a 200, they moved it up about nine inches and it made it perfectly round. And it really improved the airflow into that number two engine on the 200 series. Yeah, they had on the 100s, they had vortex generators up in there, which were not that effective. Mm-hmm. So when they yeah. made the round intake on the 200, it was much better. Yeah, it was. I'll tell you, I'll give you a little quick war story about how loud those things are. Me and Johnny Johnson, you know Johnny Johnson, we were going to L.A. at about 37,000 feet, and we'd movate along, and it was just nothing. It was just beautiful, smooth, everything, 12 noon, nothing wrong, and all of a sudden that number two engine backfired and compressed and stalled, and I tell you, the only thing that kept me from jumping out of my seat was my shoulder. It was was loud. The flight attendant, the second loudest thing I ever heard was that flight attendant coming through the door. What in the blankety blank was that? That's what that's get what me happens. Lower, get me lower. Get me lower. <laughs> that's what happens when that thirteenth uh, stage uh, surge bleed valve uh, gets stuck, and then it pops yeah, open yeah. In, in, at altitude. Well, buddy, it got our attention. We went down about two one thousand feet, 
limped well, on into L.A. and went to the bar when we got there. <laughs> well, I'm I'm uh, I'm glad we talked about this because that was an amazing feat that uh, that was done that day and back in 1974. Well, you know, think about it this way: Captain Town, he had that four-engine airplane, and I believe it was a Conair or DC seven. He took off with that one engine out on number four and lost the other one. That, you know, he he had a little training in it, you know. So when he got Absolutely. that 1011, he said, oh, Lord, not again. And he yeah. flew it around there and brought it in. And, uh, yeah. So I guess he so, put the new meeting into what the seat covers looked like after that one, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to thank Jim Town and Jack Smith and Chuck uh, with a – Last name I can't pronounce for coming in. Chuck, you did a great job. I'm really glad you came yes. on. Yes, thank yeah, you. Thank you. you had good volume and you were clear and you knew what thank you were you. talking about. Yeah, great. It was Jack an honor Smith meeting you, Chuck. Mm-hmm. Come visit us more often, you guys. Uh, we appreciate you being on on with us. We got Chuck Albright also was a L1011 uh, lead mechanic and. Uh, um, he's on. He's one of our regular hosts, but uh, we'd love to hear your experiences, and I'm sure all of you guys, with maintenance and flight attendants and pilots, of course, we all have our stories to share. Even Jim Hart has a few stories to share, because I think he wants to do it right about now, right, Jim Hart? You got it. You got it, Neil. It was back in 1963. We had a brand new vice president of marketing, his name was George Gordon, and he came from Canada, from Massey Ferguson, the heavy equipment manufacturer. He learned about a month or two uh, after he was with Eastern that uh, Massey Ferguson wanted to have a massive dealer uh, incentive program in Mexico City. And so Pan American was the only other airline bidding. And so George uh, knew that I was pretty, uh, uh, what, uh, I knew the airline, Eastern. I knew everything about it, and, and I was the guy to go to for certain things. Well, he got together uh, Marvin Bird, who was the uh, Southern Regional Director of Sales, uh, Bob Innes and Bill Allen and myself, and we all went to Toronto, and I couldn't understand what the hell I was there for uh, because nothing had been discussed with me. So we're in a big uh, – this was a fantastic move. 10,000 dealers and distributors to various points in the U.S. and Canada – we were going to be using 159 passenger stretch DC-8s, and of course, Pan American had nothing like that. They're they're an amphibious carrier, not a carrier like Eastern. Well, uh, Pan American had made their presentation, and George got up and Marvin and started to make the Eastern presentation, and. Uh, they said, you know, this is the largest move in airline history. No one has ever done this before, but we know that Eastern can do it. And, uh, geez, I'll tell you, I'm sitting there along with Bill Allen and Bob Innes, 
And uh, he said, you know, we've told you what we can do. We know we can do it. We've got the, we got the manpower. We've got the airplanes. We've got beautiful catering. And i tell you what, I even brought the man who's going to coordinate the whole thing. Jim, Jim Hart, come on over here. I could have fallen through the floor. <laughs> so anyway, he said, ladies and gentlemen, here's a fellow who's going to handle the whole thing. You will have his telephone number, both office and and phone, and don't hesitate calling him if you have any questions. Well, I'm telling you, on the way back to New York, I, I just was still flabbergasted, but I started making my plans. I knew I needed sales representatives to ride on each flight, so I chose seven of the sales reps that I knew and called each one of them, and each one agreed to do it. And uh, I'll tell you, they, they were a, a real fantastic bunch. So then Frank Sharp uh, and Bill Cambry decided they wanted to have a meeting of uh, uh, food catering people and, uh, and a few other divisions. So they called a meeting in Boston, and, of course, I went over. And I was told by Gordon... He said, Jim, you're going to have a sales promotion budget of $100,000. And he said, I want you to uh, use it to treat the people nice if you have to buy them bags or uh, uh, whatever. Go ahead and do it. Well, before I could do anything, I got back to the office, and I had a call from Don Griffey, who was the uh, district uh, sales manager, the general sales manager for Mexico. And uh, Don says, Jim, I've been hearing about this whole thing. And he said, do you know, with 159 passengers at one time, he said, that's going to be quite a load on our terminal and so on. Remember now, this is back in the early 60s. And uh, he said, I'll tell you what. He said, I need $10,000. I said, what's that for? He said, i got to pay off the customs people so they don't look at a single bag and they don't look at any health cards. You know, everyone uh, going into Mexico City had to be vaccinated. And so all of that was taken care of. When the airplanes started coming in, uh, <laughs> they, they cleared the airplanes in something like 20 or 30 minutes. Everyone went directly to their hotels. And for entertainment... Uh, George said, Jim, what can we do? Uh, these are all farm people. Do you know anyone uh, of the Western community that could take care of? I said, oh, yeah. I said, Eddie Arnold, Eddie, Eddie uh, is well received by everyone. Well, what kind of an outfit will he wear? I said, he only wears a business suit with a string tie. So he said, please get him. So I called his manager. And we paid him $1,000 a day for the 18 days he was there. And while he was there, he said, Jim, is there a chance that you could get my wife and I down to Acapulco? Neither one of us have seen it. So I got my area novice guys together, and they comped them, sent them to Mexico, to Acapulco. And it was fantastic. Well, then, listen. Then I got another call from Don Griffey. Jim, I need another 10000 I said, what's that for? He said, well, you know, 
uh, Massey has a great big train load of their brand new products. All they want to do is bring them in and show them to all of these people, their salespeople. Then they'll take them back home. He said, you know, the uh, the the, the uh, customs people, especially at the railroad, doesn't believe it. He said, if I give them 10000 they'll believe it. And that sure is the devil what happened. Well, anyway, everything everything went like clockwork. Uh, just <laughs> one telephone call. I got at 3 o'clock in the morning from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, and Warren McLaughlin. I think uh, Dorothy and Don may know of Mac. He was uh, in Miami. And so Mac called me. He said, I said, Jim, where are you? He said, I'm in Saskatoon. Uh, I said, what, what's the call for? He said, it is so cold up here. He said, I need a pair of gloves and maybe a scarf or, or what. I said, go ahead and get them. Put them on your expense account. And uh, at that point, I said, well, wait a minute. Who is watching the airplane? Because the airplane was loaded with uh, tons of liquor and so on. And uh, he said, well, listen, I'm in a line shack here. And I'm giving the guy 20 bucks to make sure he watches our airplane along with the others out on the ramp. I said, wonderful. So anyway, everything worked well. I got a call toward the end of the program. I was in Mexico City for three months during this whole thing. And, and my gift from them uh, just before I left was Montezuma's Revenge, of course. But anyway... Uh, on the last flight was coming out of Montreal. We got a telephone call, and uh, they said, uh, hey, we got a mechanical up here. I said, what do you figure the delay will be? And they said, maybe as much as nine hours. I said, oh, boy. I said, as soon as it's off the ground, please give us a buzz and let us know it's on the way. Well, it, it did. It came in quite late at night, and we had not paid off the night uh, crew and customs. So, would you believe, 109 passengers came down the stairs. 39 of them were re-vaccinated. But the the, the whole went perfectly. And can you imagine? Eastern had the privilege of being the first airline to mass move 10,000 people and let me tell you that Eddie Arnold wow. was just beautiful. He was marketing wow. his songs in Germany. He said, listen, come on up to my room. I want to sing you a song in German. So I went up <laughs> to his room. <laughs> he put his foot up on the bed. I'm sitting in the chair, and he starts singing to me in German. <laughs> I can't believe it. Listen, if and I was only a young man. I, I think I was 28 at the time. And uh, I'll tell you, my my salary at that time was thirty two thousand, and I felt pretty darn good. Uh, but I was making a lot of money for the company too, and I got another few stories for another well, event. Oh, hey, that Jim, I'll tell you about. We're going we're going to cut you short right now because okay. uh, we've got a few more things we want to talk about, and I, I want to add to the fact that, uh, and I think we said sometimes earlier in the show, that the Mexico City, Atlanta, Atlanta, Mexico City route 
made the Atlanta airport an international airport. Eastern wow. did so many firsts in its history. Uh, it's incredible how many first things started with the Eastern Airlines. With Eastern, right. Yeah. And uh, my favorite hotel, I don't know whether it was uh, there the time you did uh, the uh, the uh, uh, the Massey uh, uh, movement, but uh, the Marie Isabel always stands out to me as a premier hotel. There in you mean in Toronto? City. Yeah, and, and, and I thank some of the crew members, especially you, Jim, uh, that uh, when we laid over in Mexico City, we had, I want to keep calling him uh, Petro or uh, Juan, uh, that was our crew limo driver from the airport to the hotel, and he drove us back. Franco, but, was, uh, Franco was one yeah, of them. Franco, yeah. And Maria's and a oftentimes, beautiful hotel. Beautiful hotel. oftentimes he would take us and uh, just give us a tour while we had our layover there and took us to different places, mm-hmm. the pyramids and everything else, and it was incredible uh, uh, to fly in there. And I always liked to fly out of there because I knew I had a wonderful breakfast. Uh, the breakfast was just uh, they pay us to do this, you know, that type of thing. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but uh, but the other thing I wanted, I always remember is the airport visibility. Back in those days, we didn't have much. You talk about L.A. being bad. Uh, well, Mexico City, as I said earlier, you look straight down, you see, and that old teardrop approach that we used to make, you go over the VOR and you turn around, you come back and you land. Uh, you go around the, the mountains. Yeah, You're those were the mountains. back to the northeast and doing it at night yeah. and all that fog and everything. It makes, it makes L.A. look clear. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. You're right. <laughs> Well, that was good discussion. Thank you, and thank your guest, uh, Jim. Thanks so much. I hope they come back and be with us again. Please do. I'd love to have you back. Well, we want to talk a little bit about uh, Cinco de Mayo. uh, De Mayo. De Mayo. Cinco de Mayo. De Mayo. Coming up May 5th. And uh, just a real quick quick, uh, rundown on Cinco de Mayo is the fact that, uh, uh, let's see, Chuck, will you tell us real quickly about Cinco de Mayo? Yeah, Yeah. I'll just hit the high spots because we're running a little late. Yeah, we are. Well, so many of the Eastern employees uh, uh, have a Latin American background, and Mexico holiday was just, six days from now, May 5th, we decided to add the significance of the fifth day of May to our program tonight. And uh, here's a little bit what we know about Cinco de Mayo. Sunday, obviously, is Cinco de Mayo Day, and it's often mistaken in the United States for Mexican independence. But in fact, the holiday had its origin more than 50 years after the date associated with the country's independence. So... Here was what we needed to know about Cinco de Mayo, including its evolution to a major economic driver for businesses and stuff. Uh, the country's Independence Day is September the 16th, now a national holiday, and the day is uh, 1810. A priest named Manuel Haligo uh, implored Mexico um, 
to uh, a revolution against Spain and led the war for independence, which ended in 1821. The commercialization of Cinco de Mayo and uh, criticisms of uh, social stereotypes had uh, taken off, and research firm Nelson reported that in 2013, Americans bought more than $600 million worth of beer for Cinco de Mayo, more than the Super Bowl, or even Patrick uh, St. Patrick's Day. Um, the holiday's evolution from the earliest show of patriotism to the chiefly corporate celebration has been fruitful and to say the least. Um, another factor Cinco de Mayo celebrates has recently set off movements of racial insensitivity in the United States, despite the controversy, many American cities and other Mexican communities will be celebrating the day, including Portland, Oregon, and Denver. So that's kind of the highlights of Cinco de Mayo, and I'm from Miami, and it is giant down in Miami. I'm telling you, they block off some of the main streets that lead right down the center of Miami to Biscayne Bay, where the ocean is. And you have to park your car almost a half a mile away, and then they have all these different um, vendors that set up on the on the sidewalks with their stuff. It's kind of like here in the villages when we have our St. Patrick's and stuff. We got vendors coming in, and they just set up their little tents. So that's kind of the highlights of Cinco de Mayo. We had to kind of cut it short tonight. Thanks I guess so much, Dorothy, Chuck. Yeah, well, I want to talk a little bit about um, losing. Uh, I want to say that we lost a great uh, friend, uh, Repa did, and Eastern Airlines. Uh, we lost uh, Captain Gene Casadaban. Uh, he just passed away. Uh, he was 90 years old, and he was a resident of Norwood, uh, Norwood, Louisiana. And he had 45 years with Eastern Airlines, but he was a very good friend of mine and my wife. And we met Gene uh, when I was a director of uh, and the editor of uh, Repartee back in uh, 2000. And he was uh, on the board of directors soon to become in 2003, the president of uh, REPA. And, uh, he and his wife, Hazel, wonderful people. And during his uh, presidency of uh, REPA, he had uh, an idea that he wanted to pursue uh, if we agreed, which I'd say we, REPA, agreed, uh, to have a scholarship program set up uh, by the pilots to give a scholarship program to someone in aviation, uh, whether it's uh, engineering or whether it was in pilot, uh, uh, as a pilot, a, a commercial or professional pilot. And he had that idea. It was a great idea, and uh, the REPA board approved of it. And uh, we uh, uh, set up, our Gene set up a board of directors. I was one of the members, and Hal Nord, and uh, there were about uh, five of them, uh, uh, I think Bill Moore, who just recently passed away, was another one. And uh, we got together and decided that 
Al and I would go out and, and look at a couple of uh, universities to decide uh, where the scholarship should be set up. And Al and I went up to uh, to uh, uh, Auburn, and uh, there we decided that that was the best place to put our scholarship program. And I just received a letter from Auburn University thanking us, thanking the uh, retired Eastern Pilots uh, Scholarship Foundation for the scholarship that's there now. We had last year 102000 in the scholarship fund. But uh, a lot of people don't know that Gene, Captain Gene Casadavan, had that uh, idea because uh, I think uh, his church or one of the charitable organizations that he was a member of uh, had to liquidate uh, their scholarship or their program. And uh, they had this money and wanted to put it somewhere, and Gene suggested that he knew a good place for it. And it was with the REPA people, and they agreed, and that's what we started with. $25,000, I think, was the first uh, amount that was put in to the scholarship at Auburn, and it's grown to 102000 And over the years, we have probably uh, done up to two people a year, so I think it's 2003 or 2004, basically, is when we started. So you can see the number of people that have benefited from Gene Casadabon's idea of keeping the legacy of Eastern Airlines alive, and that he did, because that is in perpetuity. It will go on forever. The fact that Eastern Airlines was funding a scholarship program for those uh, young people that were interested in either a career as an aerospace engineer or as a professional pilot. And so Gene was a a great guy, wonderful person to uh, have dinner with. And uh, he and Hazel uh, really enjoyed my time with them, at, especially at the REPA conventions. Wonderful folks, both of them. And so, Gene, we will miss you. We'll miss you. Thanks. Uh Let's see, any additional information that uh, anyone wants to talk about before we... Yeah, Neil, this is Jim. Uh, did you know that Hal Nord lives just north of us here yeah. in West Palm? I sure do. His son lives right almost next door to me. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, after Hal's wife died, I went to her funeral, yeah. and it wasn't maybe a year that he met another lady. And I don't know if they're yeah. married or not. Do you? Yeah, they are. They are. And uh, wonderful. Now, yeah, great guy. And uh, we had some uh, very uh, great people. And uh, right now, I think there's just Hal and I that uh, still are uh, receiving information about the scholarship program at Auburn. And uh, there's some folks that are contributing uh, annually to that fund. And it uh, keeps uh, funding. And uh, it's a wonderful letter that was sent to uh, to me today. I just received it today from Auburn, and I want to see if I can get Jim Holder. I know Dorothy, if I send it to you, Dorothy, if you'll publish that, because it's a I great will. letter. 
honoring uh, Eastern Airlines uh, for doing what we uh, did, uh, especially uh, as a result of Gene Casada Bond. Gene was a Cajun. He was a Cajun captain, uh, Captain Cajun, I used to call him. But uh, at any of our REPA meetings, we'd always ask Gene Casadaban to give us a Cajun joke, and he always had a, uh, a Cajun joke for us. And they were hilarious, too. What a great guy. And his wife, Hazel, also. She died a few years earlier than Gene. Uh, Jim or Jerry, if you're with us, any comments about Gene? Yeah, he was a great guy, and uh, his wife was super great. Yeah, Hazel was wonderful. Very distinguished, very, I mean, she looked like an old Southern girl, I'll tell you. Red hair and everything. Yeah. I will tell you, uh, the confirmation, the 2019 repartee went into the process at Geographics this morning. Great. And hopefully we'll be mailing it in about... uh, Two to three weeks, it should be mailed out to the troops. And it does have some uh, testimonials or thank yous in there from Auburn, some of those uh, receiving uh, help and scholarships. I think we've got two pages of it in the magazine. Great. 80 pages. Wonderful. Uh, I want to turn it over to Dorothy now and tell us what's going on with the future shows and our sponsors and our new members. We do have some new members, right, Dorothy? Yes, we do. And actually, our count is now up to 1,020 members. So we're really thrilled. We had Margaret Arbogast. Uh, She signed up. She's 92 years young. She joined April 27th, and Margaret works at Eastern from 1945 to 52 in the accounting department in Washington, D.C., with Carl Snyder and Al Dijkstra. Uh, We had Kelby Barnes, and uh, he happens to be a nurse where Peggy is now in rehab, and Neil's wife, and she's doing better, by the way. And he signed up, and he wrote and said he was fascinated with any kind of engineering, science, flight, space, kind of like a nerd. So this is right up his alley, and he uh, also enjoyed taking care of Peggy, which we're so happy to hear. We had Cesar Augusto Baez, another new member who joined April 25th, and he was with MIN with Eastern from 1977 to 1991. We want to thank once again REPA for their scholarship, uh, I mean for their sponsorship, and we're happy that they have contributed to keep our program going, along with a lot of our other members who have contributed as well, and we do keep the legacy of Eastern in the public eye. Uh, East REPA is having their first reunion September 4th to the 6th, in 2019 at the Embassy Suites in Kennesaw, Georgia. And um, as Jim said, he has a repartee going out, and there'll be more information and uh, I think the uh, application in there as well. So that's it for that. But back to our uh, programs that are coming up. We have the repartee that Neil is going to present next week. Um, also, following that is the Eastern Air Cargo and History of Air Freight. And then we have Sunrise at Eastern that needs, Neil is going to do before we run into 
Memorial Day and a light of honor that we'll talk about Memorial Day. And uh, upcoming is the future of drone aviation. So we have a few more that are real good programs, and we hope everybody joins us. And please keep our website busy. We love to see it going. We work hard to give you some news each time that we can, and we'd like you to enjoy it and go in and see it. It would make us greatly happy. Thanks again, and back to Neil. America's favorite way to fly returns to the cyber waves, and the radio show does a little repartee. Look it up, folks, or make plans to be in our own repartee. With this, we sign off by playing a little ditty and made popular by the champagne music hitman himself, Lawrence Welk. And a one, and a two, and a three. <laughs> Good night, folks. Good night, Eastern family and friends around the world. And Good, good night, night, everybody. Wherever you are, we love you, Eastern. We We love love you, Eastern. Good night. Come back soon. Wonderful show, guys. Thanks so much, everyone. It was great. Good show, Neil. Good show. Enjoy listening. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.